Welcome to the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. Today I'm going to play you a conversation I had with John Warlow. John has written three traditionally published books, one of which was a self-published, two traditional published crossover book. You may have heard of his book, Built to Sell. John's focus is on increasing the sales value of a small business. In a way, this kind of runs counter to the show's point of view, which is much more about building expertise that has evergreen value and allows you lots of options. Things like working essentially part-time for as long as you want. So naturally, I wanted to talk to John. <laughs> he and I had an interesting conversation. We touched on topics ranging from specialization, of course, to intellectual property, to what makes services organizations entrepreneurial, finally to John's advice on self-publishing and traditional publishing. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation with John Warlow. So John Warlow, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Phil. It's good to be here. You bet. So um, you may not know this, but my podcast audience is one of the most erudite and good-looking out there. They've probably heard of you, but for the few that haven't, I'm wondering if you could say who you are and what you do. Yeah, I run a company called Value Builder, where we work with entrepreneurs to help them improve the value of their business leading up to an exit. It's a company I started uh, after having written a couple of books on the topic. Uh, one book, Built to Sell, was, uh, was uh, one of my first books about uh, how do you build the value of a company. And uh, I wrote that after having been involved in a few companies, um, you know, small businesses, frankly, service businesses where I wanted to get out, I wanted to sell them, but my initial uh, you know, read on the market, feedback from the market was that the business was not worth what I thought it was. And so I, I went about sort of changing the businesses to, to be less service businesses and more product businesses and ultimately sold, uh, sold them and tried to codify some of those uh, lessons in particular for service business owners, into uh, built to sell and ultimately value builder. So, John, how many businesses have you been like personally built and then sold? Uh, I've, I've read, read built to sell, but I, I don't remember if there was a number there or like since then if it's a much bigger number. Yeah, no, it's four. Okay, that's impressive. <laughs> that's a lot. Well, I mean, you know. Um, Service businesses in particular are tricky because the, you know, the assets, as David Ogilvy said, go up and down the elevator, right? So it's like there's nothing to sell um, unless you create some, something that an acquirer uh, could, could, could inherit without you. That's the acid test as to whether a business is something sellable is would it run successfully and indeed thrive without you personally um, you know, showing up at work? And if, if the answer is yes, you, you built a valuable company. If the answer is no, unfortunately, uh, there may be still ways you can sell your company, but it won't be for a premium multiple. It, it, it would be for a discounted multiple and, and probably on some sort of staged payment, like an earnout or something like that. Well, I'm coming up with all these questions now that I want to ask you about selling a company. But my thought in having you on the show was that we could see what you've learned about specialization given that you've worked with a number of services businesses, what I, I'm a big believer, like it's, you know, longtime listeners of this show know that I advocate specialization with the caveat that it's not for everybody. So to start with, 
I guess, what's your view on specialization generally? And then we'll see where that takes us. Oh, man, I just, I just think I wouldn't put the caveat on it, to be honest, Philip. I would just say it's, it's absolutely essential for you know, a self-funded or modestly funded startup. The only way uh, to compete is to put your limited resources against a very, very tiny market. And, it, you know, it is, it is essential. Essentially, every additional layer of target that you identify, you're diluting your limited resources to try to impact that segment. So the biggest temptation I think we have as entrepreneurs is to say, oh, it's a huge market. Like, you know, uh, all mothers can use this product, right? <laughs> but mm-hmm. there are 150 mothers in America. You know, that's uh, maybe true, but it's not until you actually isolate down to, you know, mothers with three kids, one of which has dyslexia in St. Louis, do you actually start to get a market small enough that you could actually hope to penetrate given limited marketing dollars? Uh, because, you know, unlike Amazon or Tesla, we don't all have you know, unlimited marketing dollars. We have such a finite amount. And so you've got to, you've got to put all of them against the, you know, as much you know, resource against the smallest possible point you can identify. And then over time, you can start to broaden. Um, but in my view, that's, that's the secret. And, and a lot of, you know, businesses, I don't think start that way. Um, I think we start, you know, with an idea for, hey, I'm going to create you know, this, this type of software company or I'm going to create this type of, of service business. And, and over time, if we get some traction, clients often push us off of our mission, right? So this happened to me. You know, one of my businesses was a marketing agency. And, and we had a you know, very specific focus on helping big companies market to small business owners. But, you know, it wasn't more than a year into the business where they said, oh, you, you, you've created all that great advertising for us in that little niche. Why don't you help us reach mid-market companies? Can you help us reach large enterprise companies? Can, can you help us reach consumers? Mm-hmm. And it was very tempting, uh, you know, when, when you're trying to pay the bills to, to, to basically go outside of your niche and start do, you know, doing things that were. But it would have been a death knell for that business because that, that's what made us unique is the fact that we had this very unique specialization. Right. Let's circle back to something you said earlier. You, you talked about this idea of a small enough market. Um, you know, in the book, Crossing the Chasm, it's sort of labeled as your beachhead, the place where you're going to focus everything you can throw at it at this very small place where you hope to, to make a difference. Do you ha- How do you think about how, how small is small enough? Do you, I mean, I imagine you're kind of a numbers guy or you're, you're, you have a pretty deep understanding of business metrics. Is there something, some number you're looking for there, or is it more just kind of a, a feeling thing? Or how, how do you think about that, John? Uh, you know, I, I've never in, ever seen an entrepreneur niche down enough. So I don't, I don't know that, that you could ever niche down a, enough um, to the point where you're talking about numbers and, and wondering, you know, can I, can I penetrate the market? Um, you know, is, you know, is it possible to get to, 60, 70% mark share, you know, those sorts of numbers would be, uh, would be fantastic. And, and, and if you get to the point where you've got, you know, 30, 40, 50% market share in your hyper niche, then yes, each incremental customer will be more costly to win. Mm. And so at that point, you might start to think, 
you know, you've reached the point of diminishing returns, you've got to broaden your appeal to, to, to lower your cost of acquisition. Because when targeting a market segment, uh, the first few customers are always the cheapest to acquire uh, because in any market segment, you will always be able to find one or two kind of, unless the product's terrible, one or two keen customers. The deeper into the market you get, the further and further afield you, you, you kind of creep from your original value proposition and it gets harder and harder to win customers. So when you start to feel that point of uh, saturation, when it get, it's just more and more expensive to acquire each incremental customer, then yes, by all means, it's time to broaden the target. Um, but that's rare for most entrepreneurs. The, the opposite is so much more common that you start off with a niche in your mind, you're super disciplined and within six months, the niche has gone out the window and you're, you know, you're pivoting all over the place. <laughs> and right. that's, that's the big uh, pothole, I think. Uh, in particular, if the goal is to create a valuable company, you know, if your goal is to create cash flow or a larger company, oftentimes businesses do that through cross-selling. They sell additional products and services or they go broader in additional market segments. And, and they chase kind of revenue as the goal. Mm. And, and they can get to a point where they've got uh, much more revenue, uh, but very little value. Uh, because again, when an acquirer looks at a company, they're going to look at that business and say, okay, um, these guys have got, you know, they sell widgets and they sell grommets and they sell additional services, et cetera. And, and they may see one product that is really unique that is something they couldn't easily replicate. Mm -hmm. They're going to, they're going to look at that and say, I really want that part of the business, but you know what, all that other commoditized services that they're really just winning based on price. I have no interest in that. And so the entrepreneur rightly wants to be paid for the, the entire business he or she has built. But the acquirer really only cares about that one nugget that is, that is actually differentiating. Um, because big, big, big companies who acquire businesses have endless resources. So if you're offering your services based on price or you're competing in a very competitive marketplace and you've got to you know, respond to RFPs and so forth, the big company will come to the conclusion that in order to basically win your business, they don't need to buy it. They can simply lower their price and, and achieve the same ends. Um, it's really only when you build something that is truly unique, you have a very hyper niche that you're serving either in terms of the target segment or the product you're offering. Do acquirers come along and say, wow, it would take us a lot longer to create what they've created. It's, we might as well just buy them. Interesting. That right away makes me think about intellectual property. And that's not something that most folks in, in my world start out in possession of. But I, I, I have this strong uh, sense that if they can get there, that's something that, could, that contributes value. Whether they sell or not, it, it seems like it's going to contribute to at least profit, you know, better profitability. So I've brought up a couple things there. I guess the first question, John, is do you ever see services business increase their valuation with intellectual property or something like that? Yes, although I don't know that it's intellectual property in the eyes of a, of a lawyer, like mm. in, 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 the, in the true sense of IP. Uh, sure, if, if they've got the cure for cancer, then IP will, will be a tremendous asset. Right. And it's a point. But what really IP, what, what really acquires, 
care about is a differentiated marketing proposition, a differentiated position in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So if, if part of what makes you different is, is you have some IP, that's great. But that doesn't mean that it's the only way to create a differentiated value proposition. Uh, you know, Netflix, as an example, is a, it, you know, has a differentiated value proposition. It's a brand people know. Uh, it's got something that people like, but it's not, I, I mean, it's not IP. Mm-hmm. Anybody could create a video streaming service. In fact, Amazon did. Um, it, it's a, um, it's, it's in the eyes of the consumer. Are you differentiated on what you do? That's what acquires really buy. Um, you know, IP can, I think people overemphasize intellectual property as, as an, as an asset. It's only really an asset if it, if it uh, protects a product that people want to buy. If it's just, protecting something that nobody cares about clearly that that's not in and of itself valuable. Um, it's only valuable as if it, if it provides protection, um, for a product that people have already shown a, a demonstrable, you know, willingness to buy right. and, and, and protecting it in a legal sense is one way to protect it. But, you know, there's other ways to protect that point of differentiation. One could say marketing, and investing money in marketing and continuing to reinforce in the consumer's mind that your product is unique is equally, if not more uh, valuable than a legal patent. Like, why do we buy fizzy water from Coke and not Pepsi? Why do we believe Coke is worth the dollar fifty per can or whatever you know, whatever you pay for when you go into the store um, when it's it's clearly you know, just pennies pennies to make. It's because they've invested so much to make a point of differentiation in the consumer's mind, right? And that is that is long, like it's it's provided longevity, and and it's made Coke an incredibly valuable brand. Um, but the, the ingredients, the caramel syrup, and the sugar and the water, that's not necessarily as valuable unless people have shown a, a willingness to buy Coke over Pepsi. Does that make any sense? It does. I'm wanting to to kind of pull this around back to the world of services on a smaller scale. So what what have you seen? Maybe there's patterns here, or maybe you've got a few interesting uh, case studies of what creates that uniqueness or that difference around services where, you know, a, a one to 10 person company would be delivering the kind of services you'd see there. Right. I'm not talking about your dry cleaner, but I'm talking about more, you know, professional services, for example. Yeah, I think I think here what you're first wanted. I mean, there's two ways to, to, to niche down, right? You can niche down in a product centric way, like leading with your product, carving mm-hmm. out features and benefits to you till you have a very specific uh, feature set mm-hmm. uh, and and then go to the market and look who would value that feature set. The other was more of a market uh, centric view and say, okay, what is the problem we are trying to solve and and who who has that problem most acutely? Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I've got two boys, uh, two kids at home, uh, 13 and 11, who are both super into sports and they love all kinds of different sports. And so we use an app called Team Snap. And it's a, it's a beautiful little app, mobile app, that was developed um, to help parents 
manage the schedules of kids who are running around from soccer practice one day to baseball games the next day. Right. And it's a, it's a beautiful app that avoids all the email exchanges between parents and coaches and so forth and has it all housed in one app. Um, what they've done is, is identified a, a very, very specific niche, which is parents uh, with more than one child involved in sports, uh, you know, probably relatively you know, middle class to affluent because they can afford the after school sports. Mm -hmm. um, that's a very hyper niche that they've been able to build a really elegant product around. Um, so that's, you know, you know, I, I would, I would really encourage people to think, ask the question like what product, what problem is your product trying to solve? And then once you've identified you know, what the problem is, you know, really ask yourself who feels that problem most acutely. You may start off and say, well, all parents have this problem or parents of, of you know, all kids have this problem mm -hmm. or, but, but if you can really get down to, in the case of team snap, it was the idea that you had more than one child because all of a sudden with more than one child, you've got complexity, right? Because mom's going one direction, dad's going a different direction. Right. So multiple kids, uh, you know, multiple sports, et cetera. You, you start to get much more uh, specific about who the niche is. Uh, that you're, you're targeting. So do you ever work with folks who are just so married to the idea that it's hard for them to embrace that kind of flexibility where the problem leads the way rather than their great idea? Um, yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and, and we all, I think can know, you know, struggling inventors that you, mm -hmm. you meet at cocktail partner part parties and you run the other way, at least I do, <laughs> because, you know, they, they had, there's, they're so clinging to their idea and they want to pitch it to everyone and tell everybody how wonderful it is instead of, instead of really focusing on, on, you know, being curious about what the challenge the potential consumer is, is, um, is experiencing. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of going to inventor clubs or, 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 you know, hanging out with inventors. I, I find generally they're really quite uh, dogmatic uh, in a way that they're, they kind of cling to their invention as opposed to what is the problem that we're trying to solve. And, and right now your invention might solve it well, but don't get so myopic about your product being the only way to solve that solution, that problem. Right. So you talked earlier about clients kind of pushing us off mission or diluting our uniqueness, our differentiating aspect. What do you, what are the kind of um, what do you see them do? Like, it's not like they're nefariously trying to undermine a business. No, but yeah, I agreed. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a personal example. So, so in our case, again, I shared earlier, we help big companies market to small companies. So we, um, uh, so big banks for our companies, I remember Royal Bank, RBC Royal Bank, big Canadian bank. They've got mm -hmm. a big presence in the United States now as well. Uh, we, I had a particularly good relationship with a marketing manager, one of the marketing managers there. Of course, they have hundreds of marketing managers. I had a good relationship with one of them. Um, you know, she, I, I kind of got her out of some jams over time by delivering, uh, you know, faster than other suppliers uh, sort of doing things in a more entrepreneurial way, getting things done quicker, et cetera, et cetera. And when she saw that, that I could do things on a marketing basis quicker than my competitors, she said, aha, I, you know, what else can I get this guy to do? What else can I get this company to do? And so it was because we were delivering well on, you know, service line a, 
that she wanted us to go in service line B and C. And it wasn't because she was, again, to your point, you know, intentionally pushing us off mission. It was, it was almost self-serving on her, on her part. Right. She just wanted to get her work done. She works at a company with 50,000 employees. And frankly, she's got a job to do. And the fastest way from A to B is to hire some entrepreneurial company that can cut corners and be entrepreneurial and be you know, uh, client-centric, which bigger marketing agencies could not do. And, and I think it's the same for I mean, software developers, uh, lots of different organizations, service-based organizations. Um, if they're good, they get asked to go too broad. And, and that's where we have to have show tremendous discipline. Right. Hey, quick interruption. This is called a mid-roll ad. I've never done one before, but I wanted to make sure you know about my friend Liston Witherill's new podcast. Liston helps people probably a lot like you learn how to sell with confidence. He does this by taking the emphasis actually off of selling and putting it on the idea of serving. When you're first starting out, this is super scary, super threatening stuff. But once you start moving a little ways into your career as a consultant or an agency or the owner of an agency, you start to see the value of putting service first and sales second. In other words, sales is a function or a byproduct of service. That's about the best I can do to quickly sum up Liston's position. If that idea is interesting to you, I'd encourage you to check out Liston's podcast. If you go to liston.io slash podcast, you'll see a list of all the episodes. You can subscribe and do all that stuff there. Again, liston.io slash podcast. Now back to my conversation with John Warlow. So, you know, it, one of the things that keeps coming up as we're talking is this focus on your business becoming valuable. And I imagine, you know, the sale at some point is, is the ultimate way to assess that. But I'm more interested in the traits at the beginning that you see um, helping uh, business owners like what are the traits that are you would say are associated with being able to build a valuable business? Yeah. So the, so the, uh, the overriding kind of theme is can your business succeed without you? That's mm -hmm. the acid test mm -hmm. um, to get there. One of the, the, the sort of things you might want to do as a service business owner is a TVR test. So TVR stands for teachable, valuable, repeatable. And so what you're going to want to do is grab a piece of paper, a whiteboard, and on the left-hand side, write down all the services that you provide today. So if you're a software developer, you write down all the different software uh, sort of projects you've been involved in. And then answer on a scale of 0 to 10, how teachable is delivering that service to your clients? In other words, could you hire a developer and without much work, get them to deliver for you? How teachable are them? Number two, how valuable is that service coming from you? And this one's tricky. It's best to think about what the opposite of valuable is, which is a commodity. If that is a commoditized service that you offered that lots of other software developers could offer quite easily, then you give it a very low score. If it's something you're truly differentiated on, that you have some sort of unique advantage in delivering, you give it a very high score. And then the final attribute you're measuring your services on is repeatable. And that is not how easy is it for you to replicate. It is how frequently do your customers repurchase that project from you? 
If it's a one-off project, you give it a very low score. And if it's something they need to buy regularly, you give it a very high score. And then you simply calculate out of 30 what each of the services that you provide score on TVR. And a lot of companies are tempted to say, okay, well, I should just focus on the one thing that scores the highest. Well, ultimately, that's the goal. I think the better way to approach the TBR thing is to look at the lowest scoring services that you provide today, the things that are in the teens and below 10, if you have any, mm-hmm. and eliminate them. Work your way up. Don't go top down. Work bottom up. Because when you eliminate some services that are very low scoring, that are sucking you in personally into delivering, um, you free up time to get more and more focused on the ultimately the highest scoring uh, service. Uh, but, I, but I find if you start too high, it can be intimidating. It can be overwhelming for, for, for folks. Uh, and that's when you get pushback saying, you know, how could I walk away from all that business, et cetera. It's better, I think, just to you know, once, once every three months eliminate a low scoring service, you'll get an ultimate, a quick kind of payback in terms of lifestyle benefit. And it should give you the money and the headspace to, to really focus on the service that, that is truly differentiating and does have the potential to scale. That seems like it's going to be the best approach in terms of minimizing the emotional collateral damage yes. that comes with uh, having to say no. Like, I'm sure you know this. It's like, that's one of the last things that I think folks like, uh, like me um, get good at doing is saying no. Like there's a lot of other things you can get good at before you get good at saying no. Do you find that to be true as well? I do. And if you've ever been turned down by the opposite sex, uh, as I have many times in my life, not recently, but (laughs) you know how incredibly motivating that is uh, to want to overcome that. (laughs) So, Mm. so when you do have the discipline to say, actually, Mr. Client or Mrs. Client, uh, you know, we've done some soul searching and realized that really our specialty, where we can add tremendous value is by offering X service. And for that reason, we're not offering Y service anymore. Um, that makes you irresistible <laughs> to a buyer because they realize you have discipline and that you must if you're willing to, to, to stake your reputation on that, that one service, then it must be good. Right. It, it's so counterintuitive for us as business owners to want to be customer centric when people say, Oh, we'd like to buy service B from you and, and to push back and say, actually we, we don't offer it. It's just so it, it's an anathema to kind of who we are as entrepreneurs. But trust me when I, when I say it, it, it is what makes you irresistible is if is every time you say no, uh, you are only building up the reputation in the eyes of that customer in the one service that you do have a point of differentiation on. Um, so, you know, play hard to get is my message. It is, uh, it, it can make you irresistible uh, to, to, uh, to customers and, and ultimately acquirers, if that's ever something that you're interested in. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, you know, um, we keep kind of dancing around this idea of entrepreneurs or entrepreneurial. And I, I want to ask sort of the same question again, to, to learn from your experience, uh, what are the traits or characteristics that make for successful entrepreneurs? I, I have this theory. It's not exactly what's portrayed in the press. You know, people like um, Elon Musk, his kind of recent nuttiness notwithstanding, 
are these they're like made for tv entrepreneurs right <laughs> they they're just so perfectly uh made to be written about and speculated about and admired or hated but i i think there's a whole other category of entrepreneurs that never make it in the press in that way at least that are very successful and i'm curious what you've seen them do or be or the kind of choices they make that seem to make the difference yeah, in, in my former company, we did some psychographic research into the mind of business owners, and in particular, psychographics being the motivation of business owners. Mm-hmm. And we we discovered that they can be categorized into one of three buckets. So you've got craftspeople who are motivated to build a better mousetrap, to to offer something um, truly in, a, in, a, in an incredible way. They're the they're the the craftspeople. They're the you know, the carpenter, the massage therapist, the dentist who just takes tremendous pride in delivering the product or service. Mm-hmm. You have freedom fighters who want to build a business. They don't want to, as Michael Gerber say, you know, work in the business, not on the business. But their motivation in doing so is independence. They want independence. They don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to be beholden to a specific customer. They don't want to be under the, uh, under the thumb of, a, of an overbearing boss. Mm-hmm. They really start businesses for that, that desire to, to feel independence. And then you've got mountain climbers like Elon Musk who are motivated to grow a business at all costs. The top line revenue growth is their acid test of, of their success. It's their measurement of success, I should mm-hmm. say. And so you've got a group motivated to grow the next Google, the next Apple, the next Tesla. You've got a group that doesn't want to grow that big, but really wants independence. They seek out independence. And then you've got this craftsperson group who who want to be delivering the service. They want to be serving the customer. They want to be uh, in the business, not on the business. And uh, and so that's the, the three types of business owners that we've seen. And and of course they they each have their own sort of idiosyncrasies and limitations and, and benefits, as you can imagine. Yeah, you anticipated my next question. So which one's better, John? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, funny. Look, craftspeople, if you derive tremendous value from delivering the product or service that you deliver, you, you get intrinsic value, it makes you happy, then by all means be a craftsperson. Know, however, that you will never sell your company uh, because inherent within the craftsperson business model is that you are delivering the service. So you, you, you will never create value that is transferable to a, to a third party. That's okay, as long as you go into that business knowing that that's, not, that's never gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Freedom fighter business, I think is a tremendous place to live because oftentimes, because you're not growing something of huge size, you can live in a very high margin niche. You don't have to grow a very large business. You can sleepy, you know, you can be in this little sleepy niche um, where uh, where margins are better, where you're not in the public eye, and 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 you can grow independently without taking on necessary investment. Uh, you know, a relatively good sized business. Um, the challenge with being a freedom fighter is you're never going to be famous. And so you have to ask that question. Do you want to be rich or do you want to be famous? You can't be both <laughs> because I think freedom fighters running a freedom fighter company is a great way to build wealth. Um, being a mountain climber is a great way to be famous. Mountain climber businesses are often funded. They're often funded by third party 
they, they attract venture capital, they attract the outside investors, and they can grow very, very quickly, very large. Oftentimes, the founder becomes a single-digit owner in the business mm-hmm. and therefore it is diluted away, in many cases, taken away from management of the business because they, they, they underperform the venture capital's expectations, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Now, we can all point to one or two examples. Jeff Bezos comes to mind. Elon Musk comes to mind, where they are venture-funded businesses where the founder is still operating, but they are, trust me, the minority of companies that that are mountain climbers. Most flame out in spectacular fashion. And so, you know, know, I think you have to ask that question, where does your motivation lie? Um, But I think if if wealth creation is your motivation, then, then a freedom fighter business is and retaining 100% of the equity or the majority of the equity and living in a small undiscovered niche is probably a tremendous place to play. Yeah. You know, I see, I see the audience of this podcast most reflected in the craftspeople and the freedom fighters. I want to zoom in if, if you'll indulge me on the freedom fighter archetype or psychographic type. Um, can you add just kind of another layer of resolution? Like, what are some businesses that are let's let's focus on services businesses that fit that that founder you know personality type that just would be a few kind of examples so people can kind of picture what you're talking about yeah i mean the distinction between and one of the the kind of ways to test between whether you're a craftsperson or a freedom fighter is whether you've hired full-time employees uh, because freedom fighters do have an appetite for risk. They are willing to take on employees in order to build something of a certain size. Craftspeople, if you think about it, don't have a lot of freedom. They are at the beck and call of their clients. And so one of the key distinguishing points that you would see is, is has the business owner hired at least one full-time employee? Because if they have my guess is they're likely a freedom fighter. They're trying to build a business that is independent of them personally. Um, They want something where they're not the one necessarily delivering the service every day. And that's one of the the real hallmarks. Um, It's less inclined to be uh, industry specific. So I can't tell you that, you know, all software developers are craftspeople and all uh, plumbers are freedom fighters. It doesn't work that way. We would see, all three psychographics in virtually every industry out there. The, the, it, it comes down to more the motivation of the business owner. Uh, so it, if your motivation is serving customers and, and you get your, your, your thrill from you know, looking in the whites of the eyes of your client when you've done a great job and then congratulating you and thanking you, and you're likely a craftsperson. If you want to build a business that can succeed and thrive when you're not there, that allows you the ultimate freedom over your time to go on vacation, to, 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 to really express your independence without being beholden to a single client, you're likely a freedom fighter. Does that help? Yeah. Add that extra layer. Thank you. But, but appetite for risk is one of those really true delineating factors. Craftspeople have virtually no appetite for risk. They do not want to take on risk. And when they look at a key, like a, a full-time employee, it's frankly, it's, you know, it's the ultimate expression of risk, right? They, they've got to pay for someone else's mortgage. Whereas freedom fighters will, will be willing to accept some risk, i.e. a full-time employee or, 
or more uh, in return for the reward that that gives them, which is free. Cool. Okay. Well, John, I know you've got a, another appointment here. I want to end with um, sort of a wild card question. You have, I think, four books I saw on Amazon. Is that right? Uh, three, unless I'm okay. <laughs> unless I'm one. Uh, yeah. Okay. Cl- close enough for government yeah, work. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you've published three books. Um, there's a certain segment of, of our listeners who would love to know what that's like. Uh, I'm going to pack a several, several questions into one. What's that? What is that like? What do you think looking back on it allowed you to, to do it? Like plenty of people want to publish a book and never get there. So how did you succeed at that? And I guess what would you do differently in retrospect? Wow, big question. So, yeah, so I, um, I'll i just give you a quick overview of the three books. So Drilling for Gold was a book I wrote back in the 90s when I ran the, the market research business that helped big companies reach small businesses. Hmm. And it was it was really a large-scale business card for our consulting firm. Sure. So it, it was intended as a business card. We never intended to sell any copies. So that was one. Uh, Built to Sell was written after I'd sold a couple of businesses and I wanted to codify some of the thinking. Um, it, it was more of a, of a mainstream book. It was intended to be bought, if you will. And then The Automatic Customer is about recruiting recurring revenue in a business. And what we learned through Value Builder is of the eight drivers, one of them is a real problem for a lot of business owners, which is recurring revenue. So The Automatic Customer talks about how do you create recurring revenue streams in virtually any business. So it was, sort of, it was more in support of, if you will, the Value Builder system. Um, so that's the, those are the three books. Right. Um, the most commercially successful of the three, if you want to talk about sort of units sold, maybe notoriety uh, to some extent, would be built to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was self-published to begin with and then bought, the rights of it bought by Random House. Um, and then the automatic customer was bought by Random House without a self-published version. So one of the questions I often get from would-be authors is, do I self-publish or, or use a you know, mainstream publisher? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've done both. I can tell you that self-publishing is, can be effective. Uh, you know, some very famous authors have done it effectively. Um, you know, all of the distribution and the manufacturing process of a book falls to you. And that may sound inconsequential, but it's actually a lot of moving parts. Right. There's, you know, what paper stock do you want to use? How many units do you want to ship? Where are you going to store them? How are you going to distribute them? There's a lot of moving parts associated with self-publishing a book that if that's not something you're excited about, then, then, then that, you know, that's the big downside. Hmm. Publishing a book through a mainstream publisher, I mean, the ultimate is that you, you know, the ultimate downside of self-publishing is, is it can be viewed as a vanity project, right? Mm. Um, the ultimate benefit of a random house or a, you know, a major publisher is it gives it the good housekeeping seal of approval. Now, that's diminished in time, clearly, over the last few decades. Right. But it still has that veneer of independence of credibility. Yeah, the halo and, effect. Yeah, for sure. The, the secret to uh, getting a book published is not pitching the publisher. It's getting an agent. So, uh, you know, the dirty little secret of the book publishing business is that virtually publishers very rarely buy books directly from authors. 
publishers use agents as their way to vet through the nonsense because they literally would, would spend all their day reading and they, they spent the rest of their lives and 10, 10 lives thereafter reading <laughs> right. people's pitch books. So they use agents and agents make money when you sell your book and then they make money on the, the royalties thereafter. Mm-hmm. And so the toughest thing to do is get a good agent. Mm-hmm. Agents want to know that you've got a book they can sell and that you're going to promote it and that you've got a platform. So they're going to want to know, you know, to get a good agent, you're going to want to have like a good list of uh, Instagram followers, Twitter followers, uh, email lists that you can leverage to get the book sold. And, um, you know, everybody thinks they have a great idea for a book. Trust me, there are no good ideas, no new ideas. What agents want to know is what's your platform? Uh, You know, how are you going to sell this book? Because Random House is not going to sell your book for you. They're going to need you to have a list. And so I think that's the secret to getting a good agent and networking aggressively. Uh, you know, it's a small world and people know, you know, authors talk. And, and so if you can kind of get the ear of an author, find out who their agent is, get an introduction, that's the, the, the secret. But, but it's the, oftentimes pitching the agent is five times harder than pitching the publisher. Trust me in saying the publisher, the agents can be much more, uh, um, much more difficult to impress than the actual publisher themselves. Wow, they're more discerning, huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to break the fourth wall here and say, uh, this is not really what I do with my podcast, but um, folks out there, podcasts, uh, once you have a podcast that's been around a while, authors throw themselves at you. If you want to meet authors, um, just saying. Um, so, Great John, where, where was the self-published version of Built to Sell at? around the time that you transitioned to a mainstream publisher, like in terms of if you can share, you know, units sold or how long it had been around or list size, any of that stuff, like what was the kind of um, threshold that you got past? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm going back now, so I'll, I'll have to give you estimates from just sure. rough by memory. Um, it had probably been up for six months okay. and it, it maybe sold, oh man, maybe four or 5,000 copies. Okay. Max, max, max. max. Right, right. Um, and that was a detriment to Random House buying it. That that was not that's not the way they wanted to buy it. I mean, it, they wanted to see bigger numbers. No, they would we would have preferred it never been released. In a oh, I see. Gotcha. Because that because because then it takes the the ability for them to really launch the book in a in a genuine way. Gotcha. What what Random House did when they bought it is they asked me to add another section to the book so it could be presented as a new book. I see. They, change the cover, but they would much have preferred that I not launch it as a self-published book that it, you know, they launch it properly. So you know, one thought I had was, Oh, well, you know, it'll help to show them the sales numbers. Actually, you know, they want to see it. They don't want to see it out in the marketplace until they buy it. So I would not recommend that as a route to kind of prove the, you know, the, the market for your book. Would, would they rather have seen you come to them with the audience and the sales from that book, but an idea for a second somewhat related book? Yeah, that, I mean, I think that would have certainly caught their attention if you'd be able to self-publish a book. The problem, though, from an author's perspective, is if you self-published the book and sold 100,000 copies, why do you need a publisher? <laughs> That's what unless I'm thinking. The, <laughs> yeah, unless the logistics are so arduous and so repulsive to you that, that uh, you know, the, the publisher is really acting as a, a logistics company for you, yeah. I, you know, I think what is much more common is authors need the legitimacy of the, they need the distribution. They need the, 
you know, even even with even everybody knows speaking is a great way to build your you know, self books. Um, and people who organize conferences are much more inclined to bring in, uh, you know, a random house author who has that that sort of good housekeeping seal of approval than they would be a, a self published author. Right. It, it, it elevates the the uh, authenticity of the book in the eyes of a conference organizer, for example. A little bit of a catch-22. It's like your fastest route to credibility is to start with a traditional publisher, but that's hard to do without the tailwind of having an audience and having a track record of being able to write a book. They have to be at least a little concerned that you can deliver on the book. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. But then once the flywheel starts spinning and and you have a little bit of credibility, you built a bit of list, you know, the, the publisher will will want you to write a second book and a third book, et cetera. Um, you know, automatic customer was the second book and, and that was, uh, you know, that was encouraged, you know, random house definitely was, was encouraged me to write that. It, you know, if we didn't have to pitch it to them or, you know, it was, it was a very easy process. Uh, so once they see, okay, this guy can deliver that, you know, they see the sales numbers, getting the second, third, fourth contract is, is infinitely easier than first. It, uh, First, I agree with you. It's, it, it is a chicken and egg. It's very difficult. The only advice I can say is get a platform, mm. um, start a podcast, get an email list, you know, try to build up uh, some sort of following uh, for some IP, some content, and and then be able to merchandise that to an agent and say, look, I've got you know, 10,000 Instagram uh, followers or you know, whatever right. your, your platform is. Okay, last question I promised, John. Which was the hardest book to get out the door for you? Automatic Customer, for sure. And it's because it it, it was a a book that, it is a book that involves a lot of case studies. And I'm the kind of, like I love writing, I love writing fiction. And Built to Sell is a parable, it's a fictional story. And that was, like it maybe took me three months to write that book max. Mm -hmm. But Automatic Customer required me to go back and, 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 and really dig into the details. Was it a 3.2% response rate or was it 3.1? Let me go back and look at my notes. <laughs> right. and, and doing that hundreds and hundreds of times yeah. was just incredibly annoying. So while I'm really proud of the automatic customer and product and I've gotten some, you know, it's gotten some great reviews and so forth, it was a much more difficult book to write because it required that level of detail. Uh, and, I, and I much prefer just the, the kind of off-the-cuff parable style. Yeah, you sound sort of like the freedom fighter or a mountain climber, where you're like, I, we have people for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope not. I hope I don't sound that. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm pulling your leg a little bit. Yeah, John, it's, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Um, where would you like folks to go if they're interested in learning more about all this stuff or any of these things that we've talked about? Valuebuilder.com is the place to go. Uh, you know, if you're a service business owner, uh, we love working with service business owners. Uh, essentially, what you can do is for free, go to valuebuilder.com and get your value builder score to give you a score of 100. And then you can see how you might improve the value of your service business. Um, it's, it's the place to go. So just at valuebuilder.com. Great. Well, John, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me and my audience. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Philip. It was a pleasure.